calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hello and welcome to Guiding Assets, the flagship investment podcast for CFA Institute. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. John Halsman. Dr. Halsman is the president and managing partner of John C. Halsman Enterprises, a prominent political risk consulting firm. His work has taken him around the world and into some interesting rooms over the years. I won't go through all of the impressive details, but a few highlights are that he has served as a fellow for the Center for Strategic and International Studies, the Heritage Foundation, the world's largest think tank, and is a life member of Washington's U.S. Council on Foreign Relations. A prolific writer, Dr. Hulsman has authored or co-authored 14 books and over a thousand articles, including regular columns for newspapers in London, Riyadh, D.C., Rome, and New Delhi. He's also an active speaker for governments and corporations around the world, including CFA Institute's Alpha Summit EMEA 2022 earlier this year. Amid all of this, John has made a name for himself as the preeminent predictor of global geopolitical risks in our new multipolar era. He correctly called the Brexit referendum, the presidency, House, and Senate races for the 2020 U.S. election, the coming of what he calls the Sino-American Cold War, as well as correctly calling 18 of his firm's past 20 major political risk predictions. So clearly, for those looking for an informed view of what has, is, and may happen in Ukraine, you, John, are the man for the job. So thanks for joining us, and welcome. I understand you're at home this evening in Milan. Buona serata. <laughs> Bene. <laughs> Great to be here, Mike. So as you might have guessed, our listeners are really interested in your views on the war in Ukraine. But before we get to the current situation, though, I'd like to go back a ways. It's a, it's a big question, I know, but how did we get here? What did the pundits get wrong about Putin's capacity to wage war? And what's his end game? Well, I, I think that's it. To understand where we're going, we have to know where we've been and we have to learn some history. And one of the problems, I think, is that we get too cynical and people tend to mean what they say and say what they mean. And Putin said when he came to power, somewhat surprisingly, back in 1999, that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geostrategic tragedy of the 20th century. Well, let's think about that for a minute. The bloodstained 20th century, which had Stalin, Mao, World War I, World War II, and the greatest tragedy of them all was the collapse of the Soviet Union. Sounds very odd to Western ears, but he means it because Putin made his name as an up-and-coming KGB officer in Eastern Germany. And at that time, he was treated with great respect. The Soviet Union was one of two superpowers. And even if it wasn't loved, it was certainly feared and taken seriously. And then in the chaotic 1990s, Boris Yeltsin came in. In Putin's view, the bad czar who gave everything away and left the Soviet Union merely Russia, he himself a shambolic, kleptocratic, fairly drunken figure who was humiliated time and time again. And Russia became a mendicant on the international stage. And Putin's whole career since coming to power, again, rather unlikely scenario in 1999, has been to make Russia great again. His great hero is Peter the Great, and he's gone back to that old czarist playbook. 
And what happens when Russia is strong has been the same for the last 400 years. Russia assembles a series of satellite countries in front of it that tend to be beholden to it. And then if it's attacked, as it was in the 18th century by Charles XII of Sweden, in the 19th century by Napoleon and the Grand Armée, and in the 20th century by Hitler, the Russians trade land for time. They give up control of these satellites slowly. The advancing army comes into the vast steppes of Russia, and then the Russians let time and winter save them. And this has been their strategic defense for 400 years and has worked very well. And so Putin has gone back to trying to reassemble this satellite series of countries in front of him. In 2008, he intervened decisively against Georgia, making it, in effect, a mendicant of Russia. In 2021, he intervened decisively in the Armenian-Azerbaijani civil war, this time as the peacemaker, but became the dominant figure in the Caucasus. In 2015, he he intervened in the blood-soaked Syrian civil war, regaining the Russian naval base at Tartus. He's regained Russian control of the Balkans. And last year, he regained control of Belarus when its own people were about to throw out their dictator, Alexander Lukashenko. So he's painstakingly been at this now for 20 years without anybody watching. But if you look at a map, none of this works without the jewel in the crown, Ukraine, as a pro-Russian country. And since Zelensky has come to power in the Maidan revolution of 2014, it's been a pro-Western country. He has to tip this domino up to finish what he sees as his life's work. This isn't the beginning of something with Putin. It's the end of something. We've just missed the signs. I think there's a certain schadenfreude in Western media around the impounding of luxury yachts and homes of Russian oligarchs. But beyond those headlines, John, how, how effective do you think those sanctions will prove in applying pressure to Putin? And is there a risk that it backs them into a corner? I think, I think let's start with the last question, Mike, because this is a key to going forward in, in policy and political risk. There are two risks. There's a Scylla and a Charybdis, and you have to avoid, as Odysseus did, both sea monsters here. The Scylla, the first sea monster, is to do too little. You then embolden the aggressor to do more. And indeed, part of the problem is that Putin, after 2014, when, as you say, he intervened, he annexed Crimea, the southern part of Ukraine, without any opposition, with a little bit of Western grumbling, but literally not much going on at all. And so he thought, why should the response be any different this time? The Europeans are still dependent on Russian natural gas as they were last time. Why should anything be different this time? And so this has been a confusing signal because we did too little last time. It's led to misunderstandings and brinksmanship this time. But then the other danger, the Charybdis, the other sea monster, is that if we are too effective, we're dealing with a country with nuclear weapons. And the ultimate goal since Jack Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis is that two nuclear armed powers never directly confront each other. Yes, they fight proxy wars. The Russians armed the North Vietnamese to the hilt during the Vietnam War. The United States armed the Mujahideen to the hilt during the Afghan War. There are client states like Cuba that drive the United States crazy. And the United States has been involved in Eastern Europe for a long time, and that's fine. But you avoid directly con confronting one another. And this has been, in effect, the rules of the game since Jack Kennedy and Nikita Khrushchev saw off the greatest single danger to the man mankind probably ever. As Kennedy said to Bobby at the time, his brother, there's about a one in three chance we get this wrong. And nobody wants the odds ever being remotely close to that again. 
And so the goal for the Biden administration has been to put sanctions on, to make Putin suffer for his act of aggression, to show him that we are serious about this without so backing him into a corner that you ruin these rules of the game, which have seen the world not have a nuclear attack throughout the last 75 years. And so these are the two sea monsters to avoid. And so that second question you ask, I think, is the key one. The sanctions have been remarkably effective. Yes. I mean, I was talking to a number of my banker clients, and this has been the problem. We've lived in an era of globalization with an economics first view of the world. We're now living in a different era. A new era is dawning where geopolitics is equal, if not more important. And he said to me, oh, they're never going to mess with the oligarchs. There's too much skin in the game through uh, in investments they have in London, amongst other places. And they'll say some things, but nothing will happen. And I said, you're absolutely wrong. This is a fundamental sea change. And these sanctions put upon Russia, for instance, that Russian companies are kicked, uh, kicked out of the SWIFT system, means that it's very hard now for the Russians to trade with the West. Nobody thought there'd be this level of sanction. These are the most significant sanctions put in place since World War I. That's really the comparison when Britain and Germany and the Americans outside did this. It's really been since the Kaiser, since we've seen anything like that. And that has taken Putin aback. Another great example, and maybe the fundamental one, the Russians have a very able central bank, and they've amassed a war chest of $600 billion around the world in terms of foreign exchange reserves. The G7 have managed to freeze $300 billion of this dollars immediately. They have the Russian national reserves by freezing this. Nobody thought they would do this, including probably most of the members of the G7. And so these sanctions have limited the amount of time that Russia can actually make war on Ukraine. The estimate is now about two to three years, but that's different than five or six years by a lot. So these sanctions are real and they're sticking and they're hurting the Russians a great deal. Yes. This conflict has shone a bright spotlight on Europe's dependence on Russian oil and gas. How are states pivoting now to invest in energy independence? And what are the implications for energy independence outside the region? I think it's part of a bigger subset of the death of the era of globalization. I think if you look at the world, I think this is very helpful for investors. And, and one of the things my firm does, and I think why our call rate is so good, is that we have a very historical approach that all my senior guys have backgrounds in history. We are not theoretical political scientists. We look at people's lives as they've actually lived them. The practicality of looking at people for the last 3,000 years, what have they done right? What have they done wrong? How do we behave remarkably heroically? How do we behave remarkably stupidly? All these things go together and that work best when you look at actual life as it's been lived. And I, th I think that's a key advantage that the forum actually brings to the, to the table. And one of these things is now this era of scrambling. If you look at the world in eras between 1991 and the end of the Cold War and now, you have a discernible era of globalization. And what does that mean? One, there's one supply chain, basically, around the world. The just-in-time manufacturing is the key. Doing things at the last minute, not caring at all about political risk, not caring, Mike, as you mentioned, about things like security of supply, not really worrying about that, worrying about what's the cheapest thing, what's the economically most rational thing. It was, it was the era of the banker. It was the era of the big bank. It was the era of trade. And these things still are incredibly important. But from being the overwhelming importance, they're now one of three. Geopolitics, politics, and economics are now roughly equal in importance. And then we've seen the problem with the German approach. If you only care about buying 
what's cheapest, which is Russian natural gas. It's closest. Gas is a heavy product. Moving it costs money, takes time. And so in theory, if all politics is equal, meaning no politics matters, you'd buy the closest one. Of course you would. The problem is politics matters, as we've seen that. And if you have a regime that wants to upend the existing world order, then you're going to have a very different era. We see the breakdown between the United States and China. Nobody's going to do away with this one global supply chain, but they're going to hedge. There's going to be more regionalization. There's going to be more onshoring. There's going to be more worrying about security of supply. Suddenly, Americans worry about where their uh, natural earth products come from. Nobody cared about this before. Nobody cared about where their computer chips come from. Now we realize, good golly, most of them come from Taiwan. Most rare earths come from China. Most pharmaceuticals that we needed during COVID come from China. And this made people very nervous that the rare earths come from China, that the silicon reality of high tech is all vested in Taiwan, an area of great contest between China and the United States for both sides, insecurities on both sides there. And so all these things are changing the era. Yes, we're still going to have this one supply chain, but energy is part of this bigger argument. We're now going to do more onshoring, more regionalization, because in the EU, the Italians trust the Germans in the long run to be democratic, pro-Italian. They don't need to worry about that, so they'll buy more there. The United States trusts Canada and Mexico and NAFTA to be relatively pro-American. They don't need to worry about them being like China or Russia and trying to upend the global order. The Chinese are doing the same thing. They're looking to neighbors to do more trade with. So you have this regionalization, you have onshoring because security of supply and safety suddenly matter. And energy is part of this, but I think one way for investors to look at it and our audience to look at it is this is the end of the era that began in 1991 and is ending now in 2022 with COVID and Ukraine. They're the two killer blows of this era. And we're now living in an era where political risk is very much on. So looking forward, John, I wonder if you could take us through the highest probability military scenarios that might play out and what the risks are you see to those scenarios. Can I go back one step and talk about where the Russians failed and then what they're doing? I'd like to do that in this answer because I think it explains, again, the history explains it. The Russians, thought, the Russians thought they'd take Kiev in two days and they'd take Ukraine, which is an immense country larger than France, in two weeks, meaning they'd kick in the door and there'd be no problem. That's what they thought. Putin made three basic mistakes and as to why this didn't happen. One, his plan was way too complicated. The Russians haven't done a three-pronged military assault. And let's remember that they came down from Belarus from the north. They came from the Donbass, the Russian-speaking eastern provinces that they've held since 2014. They headed out from there from what amounts to the east, and they came up from Crimea from the south. A three-pronged assault, a blitzkrieg in essence. And this only works if those three different areas move together in unison. Then it's a devastating approach, as we saw in World War II. It works very well. However, they quickly bogged down into three very different wars. In the north, they were stopped, absolutely stopped. In the east, they made slow but steady progress, but unremarkable. And in the south, and you don't hear this in the Western press enough, they made pretty good progress. They did rather well. So you have three totally different outcomes, meaning there's no coordination. And worse, the Russians had no one general running everything. They've rectified this era. Now they put in 
a very effective and ruthless commander named General Alexander Dvornikov, who made his name in Aleppo, bombing Aleppo under the ground and helping Assad retain power in Syria. He's now come in to coordinate, but up until now, they've had three separate commanders. Very hard to coordinate. We couldn't get three of us to agree on an ice cream flavor. And to expect them to coordinate military policy is kind of hard. And it didn't work. So this was error number one, was just military mistakes. And two, Ukraine is actually a country. I mean, Putin wrote a very long essay. Again, you have to read him and believe that he means what he says, whether he's right or wrong is secondary. And he said, look, Ukraine in essence is part of Russian culture and it's a province of Russia. And it always has been. And they're not gonna fight for Ukraine if we were to invade. He said, Eastern Ukrainians, and I've been there many times, speak Russian. Western Ukrainians speak Ukrainian. And if you look at a division politically, they vote for different political parties. It was not an unreasonable view of Putin. Eastern Ukrainians tend to vote for the more pro-Russian party. Western Ukrainians tend to vote for more pro-Western, pro-EU parties. And this has been the stance since 1991. So Putin not unreasonably thought, it's not a real country and at least half of it's going to support me so I can kick the door in. Well, Alexander, they, they didn't reckon on President Zelensky doing a pretty good Winston Churchill impersonation. When asked to leave, he says, I don't need a ride. I need ammunition. And everybody's going to be quoting this for the rest of history. And he has forged a nation unwittingly. And this is life. I worked in Washington in the line of deep throat, you know, in, in all the president's men is, is my takeaway from studying political risk. These aren't very bright guys and things got out of control. I mean, that explains more to me then does this idea of Oliver Stone, that very wise, very wicked people move strings around and things happen. That's not the case. The play isn't Macbeth, it's Hamlet. It's well-meaning guys making mistakes that explain the world. And Putin just got it wrong. Ukrainians are willing to fight and Zelensky is forging a nation in this conflict. They're not only fighting, they're fighting effectively and heroically. Putin didn't count on that. And then third, the point, Mike, you brought up already, which is about sanctions. He, again, not stupidly, thought the West isn't going to do very much, not seeing that we did indeed see this as an egregious assault to the established order and that we would indeed work together. You now have Europe fully back on side in the American camp when it was very much drifting away uh, before this. And this has been a gigantic change. So on all three of these points, he's been wrong. And so he's regrouped. He's learned his lesson. And so now the plan has evolved. He still wants, as we said, strategic depth. That's still the name of the game, but he's going about it differently. He's going to go, and anybody, please do look at a map after this. I look at one of Ukraine almost every day. I've been there five or six times and spent several months there. And so I know most of the big cities, but I have to admit I'm on my hands and knees trying to figure out the names of the villages every morning uh, for work. And it's very important to see the contiguity of what Putin's doing. Rostov-on-Don is the, the last big city in Russia nearest Ukraine, and you can resupply your army from there. So suddenly he has no logistics problems. And logistics have been the bugbear of the Russian army since World War II. They're not very good at logistics traditionally. They're very good at artillery. They're very good at tanks. They're very good at heavy armor. They're not very good at supplying these folks. And so now he's made that easier. You supply them directly from Russia. It's a simple plan, which the Russians are good at. Think Marshal Zhukov, straightforward. One-pronged assault, not a three-pronged assault. They're going from the Donbass in the east, trying to take Mariupol, hook up through the Sea of Azov, and have the people from Korea come the other way, thereby making a land bridge that goes from Rostov through the Donbass, through Mariupol, to Crimea. Then if that goes well, 
all things God willing from his point of view. You then go to Odessa and then perhaps even into Transnistria, which is the little sliver of Moldova that's Russian speaking. And if you look at a map, that is contiguous. That is all joined up territory. And you have what Putin calls Nova Russia, New Russia. You have an area of all Russian speaking people who are all part in his mind of Russian culture that he can defend. The advantage of doing this is you've cut off Ukraine. A rump Ukraine survives, but it's landlocked. It's now cut off from the sea, from trade, from prosperity. And you have a Russia that now expands one way or the other along the Sea of Azov, along the Black Sea to Crimea. And that's now all linked to the ocean. And so they're outward looking. They get the benefits of having ports, which are the key geostrategically to everything. And you have a Ukraine, but a weak rump state that doesn't have much economic wherewithal. That's the game plan. The other advantage he has is that the terrain is better in the South. The ground is harder. There are fewer forests. There are more roads. So the tanks don't all get caught in one road, as we saw over and over again in the North. Um, the problem for him is he's got to break out, though. Let's remember, as you pointed out, Mike, that they've been fighting since 2014 there anyway. There's trench warfare, low-level, low-intensity conflicts since Putin took most of Luhansk in 2014, one of the provinces, and a little bit of Donetsk. He needs to finish through Donetsk and then break out to Mariupol. That's the plan. But there are trenches there. If the armor can break out of the trench warfare, then he's on to a winner, and he can actually do a pincer movement and cut off the Ukrainian army there. But if he doesn't break out, and again, the, the trenches are very good. They've had eight years to build them. If the trenches remain, he will be stalemated very quickly. He's still moving full forces around. They have not gone into their full attack mode yet. That will come in the next week to 10 days, probably. But we'll know in the next three or four months if he breaks out. If he breaks out, there's room to run with the tanks and the artillery. But he's got to break out. And the Ukrainians are aware of that. If they hold firm, there'll be a stalemate very quickly. So there will be a dramatic change in fortune in, say, the next two months. We'll know. Let's turn to the implications of the war on the politics of the broader region. So what does this mean for future NATO or EU memberships for Ukraine and other contiguous countries? I, I mean, in a way, and, and by the way, my, our, our firm's estimation is he's not successful. We, we think the Ukrainians will hold. I, I want to say we do have to consider both options. As always with businesses, their percentages, and we do that like the intelligence people and businesses, we speak in percentages. We strongly think there's about a 70% chance that Ukraine holds on a high chance, not, not 100, but 70, a good number. But if they were, the Russians were to be successful and break out and have Nova Russia and get to Transnistria, which would be the most they could possibly do. Of that, there's a much lower chance, but let's say they do that. I think the odds are incredibly great that the rump state is, is accepted into the EU. I think the idea that the Russians get away with this isn't really going to help them. Um, I, I think that, that, that I think in a way it almost doesn't matter anymore. I think the geopolitical, our takeaways, the geopolitical outcomes are already baked into the cake, regardless of what happens. If the Russians win, Ukraine will still get into the EU probably in the next five years. If the Russians lose because they've been successful, the EU will still probably take them in in the next five years. We don't think the war, the war, like all wars, has huge implications, but I think they're already out there. One of them is that Ukraine will be accepted in the EU. The other is they will not be accepted into NATO. Zelensky's already said he doesn't even want to join. There can never be a deal with the Russians on anything if they join. He doesn't need to join. What he wants are security guarantees by the West. 
Well, that's joining NATO by the back door anyway. If you've got a security guarantee from the United States, in essence, you have a NATO guarantee. Which they're seeing now in, in, in action, right? With all of the, uh, the, the support that they're receiving from the West. Exactly. And, and so I don't, I don't really think that that matters. What, what's happened because of this, though, is a number of fundamental and profound things in the world. One, Russia is now firmly in the Chinese camp, and they were not before. They were flirting with the Chinese. They tilted toward the Chinese, but they weren't there. And the problem was basically what I call the Batman problem. Somebody has to be Batman and somebody has to be Robin, and nobody wants to be Robin. And th this broke up the alliance in the Cold War. Mao was willing to be Robin when Mao was Batman, but he wasn't willing to be Robin for Khrushchev. Who's this Khrushchev guy? And, and so they broke up the alliance because he saw China's growth potential. Why should we second banana to these guys? The Russians could only work in an alliance with China if they were Robin. China's easily the superpower, infinitely bigger economy, infinitely more important in trade patterns around the world. All Russia trades is energy and weapons. That's it. Russia's GDP is smaller than the state of Texas. And it's a great power, but a declining one. And so it has to be Robin, and Putin didn't want to be Robin because he's a great Russian nationalist. I mean, I absolutely understand. There's a reason he has that picture of Peter the Great on the horse. You know, that's his view of himself. And so he, he's popular in Russia because he's not Robin. Now he has no option. He's been humiliated by not winning immediately. He's a pariah internationally. And his only option, as you said rightly about gas, but even more geostrategy, is to go to China, but very much is the junior partner. So the Batman problem has been solved on China's terms, and that's an outcome of the war. Secondly, Europe, which was flirting with neutralism too from the United States, now is firmly back in the American camp. You had under Merkel kind of an isolationist, mercantilist view that the energy policy symbolized that they didn't want to be too hard on the Russians in 2014 because they got all their energy there and they didn't really want to spend money on defense. Better the Americans do that and they free road off them while disagreeing with them. And the Americans put up with this, but nobody was very happy about it. And China's the largest trading partner with Berlin, as they point out to me every time I go there. So were they really committed Atlanticists spending 1.3% of money on defense? No, no, they weren't. And they were heading more and more to this German mercantilist, neutralist position. The French were Gaullists, which is a longstanding French position. And the Italians were Atlanticists. You got a whole lot of nothing at the European level. If you have three foreign policies, it means you have none. And that's what they had, a Tower of Babel. Well, that's not happening anymore. Now, everyone is firmly back in the, in the camp. No one argues that NATO matters anymore. Everybody accepts that NATO matters now. Uh, because life insurance doesn't seem very important until there's a tsunami. Then you care. So I think the rules, certainly on the NATO end, are clear. Less clear is what happens in the Donbass. But if Putin were to win, that would be that. It would stop then at, at Transnistria. And if uh, the Ukrainians are to win, I think it's more of an open issue. But certainly the Ukrainians aren't going to invade Russia proper even if they did retake the Donbass, there are limits to how far they would go. And those geographical limits are when we get to peace and both sides say, well, I'm unhappy, but let's cut a deal. Um, the idea that they're going to end it now, though, this is just wishful thinking. They, they both think they can win. And until one or the other thinks they've lost, you don't have a deal. Our final question is a, a two-parter. So I wonder if you could tell us, what was your first job in the industry? And if you could go back and take yourself for coffee on your first day, 
what key piece of advice would you offer yourself? Those are great questions. I love the last one. I'm going to say that. That's a great question. I mean, I started out as most people did because there wasn't a political risk profession per se. There was Kissinger Associates, which was quite niche, and there was the Economist Intelligence Unit, which is very good on macro, but less, less interested then on geopolitics and politics. It does more of that now. Uh, but back then it was niche and that it was macro and Kissinger was just the rock star Rolodex. I mean, you know, that he knew everyone and the people around him knew everyone and all. And, and, and that, and that was it. And I started out as most guys do, who do what I do um, in think tanks, you know, that I, I worked in think tanks in America and I uniquely in America, which I think helped me a lot. I worked for the left, the right and the center in America, which you can't do anymore. I worked, as you mentioned, for CSIS, the strategic uh, center there with people like Dr. Brzezinski on the center left, the old tough Truman Democrats. I'm, I'm a life member of the Council on Foreign Relations, a made man in mafia terms uh, as a life member there. And that's a centrist organization, certainly. And then I worked on the, on, on the right in Heritage, which is the biggest think tank in the world, quite right wing, whereas I was their kind of Eisenhower Republican. I was their last left-leaning internationalist old Eisenhower Republican, which because I did Europe worked fine for everybody. Um, and, and actually I learned an awful lot there and enjoyed that. But I, I had real doubts about the Iraq war working, which turned out to be true. And I wrote a book with a guy on the left called Anatole Levin called Ethical Realism saying, I thought the neoconservative invasion of Iraq not only was it going to fail, which turned out to be in political risk terms right, but that they weren't conservatives. They were Robespierreists. They wanted to have world revolution. And that's not what conservatives want ever. Conservatives are Burkean. They don't want world revolution. It's the last thing they want. And so I, I was very suspicious of the reasoning for the war. And this, of course, drove a lot of people at Heritage crazy that I didn't just go along with President Bush. And uh, I was martyred. The New Republic, not my magazine of choice, it's on the left, wrote a lovely article about my martyrdom in essence, saying, if the last Eisenhower Republican is out, who are we ever going to work with, was their point. And this got read everywhere. And suddenly, my I was a cause celebre as a Republican who resigned over the war. And in Europe, I was particularly, I was every European's favorite. I didn't have to buy a drink in a bar for 15 years because every you're the kind of Republican we like. And I'm like, yeah, I'm the only one, but thanks. And um, <laughs> I got a job um, at the German Council on Foreign Relations on no time because I had to go somewhere and do something. And European think tanks are less policy driven than in America, less involved in the day to day governing of the country, much more academic. And uh, it was a very nice perch, but I was bored. And so being a good Thatcherite, I said, well, I think I know more than these old men have gotten us into Iraq. Why don't I prove it in the market? Why don't I start a risk firm, see how it does? And if I fail, I still have this great job here in Germany working at a NGO and, you know, working for, you know, a, a very nice, very, very well respected uh, think tank. And I started in 2006 with some friends and we've gone on from triumph to triumph and triumph. And it's the best thing that I ever did. Um, I felt like Peter Gabriel leaving Heritage. I'm leaving Genesis. And suddenly I have all these songs I want to do, you know, that I've been waiting to do. And I had years where I had all this material that, that I just hadn't been able to do. And so that was a wonderfully fertile time for me. And we've really ridden that wave ever since. And so that's kind of my background. What would I ask myself? And that is a great, great question. Um, I'd say two things to myself, which sound contradictory. 
And I'm going to quote F. Scott Fitzgerald and say, you know, the mark of genius is to hold two contradictory opinions and, 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 have the, and not be bothered, not be troubled by that. I don't know that I'm a genius, but I certainly hold two contradictory opinions. And, and they are, I would be both braver. I would have done that sooner. I would have worked for myself sooner. Uh, there isn't enough good political risk analysis out there. There are plenty of great firms. I love working with CFA and I've met them. There are plenty of great firms that we work with who want to get it right, who know that political risk matters and want to get it right. Find them, work with them, and you're going to have a great and creative life. I love the private sector because if you're right, they'll invite you back and pay you more. And if you're wrong, they won't. I hate the public sector because some of the neocons are still around, despite Iraq, despite Afghanistan, despite being wrong about literally everything, they're still talking about Ukraine. And I, I think that's terrible in a republic when you're that wrong and there's no penalty paid for being wrong. I love the private sector because if you're right, they'll pay you more, they'll listen, they'll invite you back, you'll have a relationship with them. And if they're wrong, they won't, quite rightly so. So I would be braver earlier, even than I was. What I also would do would be to say, you know, brash as you are, you can learn from being wrong. Our call record is about 80%, which is the best in the business. And I love that. But you have to be honest about being wrong. And the younger version of me, like everyone in Washington, thinks that being wrong means that being, you're human and being human means you're somehow weak and, and not worth anything. Own up to your mistakes. Learn from your mistakes. Admit to people that you're wrong. And it's like baseball. The best baseball team's still going to lose 40 games every major league season and it's some pretty awful teams. So you're the Dodgers. You still could lose to nobody. My Cleveland Guardians, you could lose to. Um, but you're going to win most of the games and probably win the World Series. It's not random. The best teams win the most games and tend to win the World Series. But you're going to lose 40. Lo learn from losing. Learn from when you're wrong. Be honest about being wrong and people are going to find you an attractive human being because you admit you're very good at what you do, but you're fallible. Learn from that 20%. Admit that. And that's a very grown up thing to do that I don't think my younger self ever got quite right. But that is a fantastic question. I would be very stern with my younger self. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today, John. You've given us a really fascinating look into the motivations behind this conflict and a possible set of paths forward. Well, let me just say, let me just say, Mike, I literally was thinking of Salisbury Hill, the great song he wrote when he left the band as I walked out of Heritage. It literally came into my head as I walked out the door. And it was one of the greatest moments in my life. It's been a real pleasure. We've been speaking today with Dr. John C. Hulsman, speaker, author, prognosticator, advisor, and president and managing partner of John C. Hulsman Enterprises. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and this has been Guiding Assets.